Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, good morning, Mo. Good morning, uh, good morning. You're, I'm sure, no doubt, noting that I am not entirely in, uh, in a JBJS tie. I have noticed that you are very, very casual today relative to your normal, normal attire. Yeah. But but that's a good thing. See, I think you've evolved, you know, to, well, yeah, to, I, to the non-tie look. That's great. I think you made a very strong argument during that episode of Ortho Joe that I need to move forward in my life. Uh, and so I'm endeavoring to do that this morning. Um, but part of the part of the reason I have to admit is that I'm I'm not in the office and I'm not in Needham uh, because I'm getting packed to get ready for the fall meeting of the of the editorial board. So I I don't have my Ortho Joe mug. I had to find an old American Board of Orthopedic Surgery mug and and uh, yeah. Well, well, but we've got the Joe. Uh, so the Joe is always yeah. there and always yeah. powering this, this, this give and take. So uh, I'm going to let you introduce uh, Jason, who, sure. is, who has really blessed us with his presence in the past to give us an update. But here's to another good week. Absolutely. And I'll see you tomorrow, too. And, uh, and, oh, that's right. Um, yeah, that's yeah, right. There. In Look person. In person. Can't wait. Yeah, it's going to be great. So um, we have Jason back um, for a second uh, visit to uh, our podcast. And, and Jason, as some may know, uh, we affectionately call him Jason, but it's Dr. Bussa, uh, professor at McMaster University and director of the National Pain Center uh, in Canada. And he has done a lot of work on thinking about chronic pain in general. And, and I wonder, Jason, if you might just give us a bit of an update on some of the work you've been doing and specifically related to a, a recent paper that came out that looked at the various types of opioids and whether there actually is a difference between any of them and maybe anything else that's on your mind. Sure. Yeah. Cut me off at any time if I uh, start to ramble, but uh, great to be with both of you this morning. So we we have, as you mentioned, been doing some work looking at opioids for some time now. And the recent paper that came out, which, which you were a co-author on, Mo, was really to help us better understand the relative effectiveness and harms of individual opioids. Part of this is in preparation for an update of the Opioid Guideline for Chronic Pain, which we put out in 2017. And it's now time to update. So we're beginning to compile all that literature. And when we did our original primary systematic review, which uh, came out in JAMA, we found there was a small average effect of opioids on pain relief, a small average effect on functional improvement and sleep quality. But in particular, for the effect on pain, we found there was a fair bit of unexplained heterogeneity. And we thought one possible cause might be different types of opioids. Historically, they've been combined in other systematic reviews and in ours, uh, but no one had actually tested whether these individual opioids showed evidence that they could be systematically different. And if they were, that might help guide their use clinically. So in addition to looking at that, we explored two approaches that have commonly been used in uh, something called network meta-analysis to try to... So Jason, can I stop you right there? Because there's going to be a a, a number of our audience members who have heard the term, but don't really quite know the difference between network and meta-analysis. Could you just give us a brief primer on that? Yeah, absolutely. 
So a, a conventional meta-analysis, you, you take the trials as you find them, you can explore the comparisons that they've reported, and you can pool trials that have made similar comparisons. When it comes to a lot of areas, and maybe chronic pain in particular, the comparisons are usually against placebo, which is not what we care about clinically. No clinician is deciding whether or not to give an opioid or a placebo. They're wondering about all the different types of opioids. Should I consider codeine? What about tramadol? What about fentanyl? What about oxycodone? And so what we'd like to see is trials that compare different active interventions against each other. But because you don't have to do that in order to get approval, many trials don't. It's also a lot easier to show effectiveness when you're comparing against placebo as opposed to another active treatment. Network meta-analysis is a, I would say it's fairly established now, but it is still somewhat new. It's a strategy where you can create the head-to-head trials that have not been done by virtue of a common comparator. So if I have a trial that's looked at codeine versus placebo and another trial that that looks at tramadol versus placebo, because of the common comparator, which is placebo, I can statistically model what the relative effectiveness of codeine versus tramadol would be. And there's a lot of software packages now and uh, you know, established methodology that has supported this approach. So that's what we did. And there's the more common approach of establishing the relative effectiveness of an intervention in a network meta-analysis is the, the acronym is SUCRA, and it provides a ranking that an intervention is the best amongst all you've compared or second best or third best. And these relative rankings are used very often, reported very often, and they send a very powerful message. But one of the underlying problems of this very common approach is they only consider the point estimate of effect. They don't consider the certainty of the evidence. And so what we did with this paper is we conducted this network meta-analysis. We looked at the relative effectiveness of all these different individual opioids for chronic pain, We then rank them according to this traditional approach, this SUCRA approach, but we also use something more recent called a minimally contextualized approach, which does consider the certainty of evidence in the rankings. And what we found is if we use this traditional SUCRA approach, which is very widely reported, it appeared as if there were very important differences between individual opioids. Some were much better at providing pain relief, some provided greater risk of of gastrointestinal harms. But when we used a minimally contextualized approach, and in particular, when we only looked at those opioids supported by higher quality evidence, we found no difference among them. So our paper did two things. One, it found that uh, at least on a uh, sort of a population level, there are unlikely to be important differences in individual opioids. And two, we found that this traditional method of reporting the relative effectiveness of interventions in network meta-analyses, this SUCRA approach uh, has a great potential to mislead. And so the other message was people doing these kind of reviews should really not rely on this approach when they're determining relative effectiveness. Jason, can I, can I ask you uh, about these individual trials? Anybody who's listening to this or, or viewing this who has any sort of clinical experience knows that patient factors in terms of response or need for opioids is huge. And in these trials, how well do they control for patient factors of pain interpretation, personality issues, et cetera? 
They don't. <laughs> they don't. So you're, you're quite right. I would say the other problem is these trials systematically exclude the more complex patients. You're not getting individuals in these trials that have comorbid mental illness. You're not getting individuals that are involved in uh, litigation or receiving disability benefits. So you're getting a very clean population, and they do tend to report average responses. And you're right, the, the individual responses to a different treatment, in particular with chronic pain, tend to be quite important. And it's an area of active study, you know, in terms of who might respond to an intervention, who might respond to a type of surgery, who might respond to a interventional therapy. But in terms of the, the directly reported trials, they, they tend to be fairly small in terms of the number of patients they enroll, and they don't look at patient-specific factors in terms of response. Thank you. Uh, if I may, I would just like to point out to the, to the audience that anybody who's doing this kind of research and uses the visual analog scale for, for pain response should be aware of a paper that was published in Journal of Clinical Epidemiology in 2004. Uh, Kirk Wood uh, and Bob Kane are the authors. It's a, it's a common pain experience normalized VAS scale. And it's just four common pain experiences. It's like a paper cut and dental pain. And it asks the patient to, to scale what those are. And then you can normalize their VAS response to those common pain experiences. It's a very underutilized tool in pain research. So I just wanted people to be aware of it. I, I speak of it often when whenever the topic of pain research comes up. You know, uh, Jason, I wonder also, like, so having done this work um, and thinking about what's next, I mean, I know you're, you're talking about an update to the chronic pain guidelines themselves. I mean, are you seeing or expecting big changes? I know there was a pretty considerable media impact of those guidelines, certainly in Canada, and I suspect, you know, um, they've had impacts outside Canada. What's next with respect to the guidelines? Are you expecting big changes coming up? So when we started off those guidelines, there were 24 areas where our stakeholders told us that they wanted recommendations. We only had sufficient evidence to make 10 of those recommendations. The other ones, we gave some general guidance, but we didn't have enough evidence. So my hope is this time around, there will be more evidence in some of those areas. Things like, is there any value to putting people on treatment agreements? Is there any value about urine drug screening to try to prevent overdoses. There, there wasn't enough evidence the first time around to make a formal recommendation, although I will say some guidelines did, and we know that's potentially problematic. There was one area that we had only low certainty evidence, and we were trying to be quite cautious about it, but this was the issue about tapering patients, legacy patients, that were using high-dose opioids. And we had low certainty evidence that it might reduce their risk of rare but serious adverse events, but we also had low certainty evidence that it might increase harms, withdrawal, and then patients then going to illicit forms of opioids, for example. And so we were, we were quite cautious. We made this a conditional recommendation to approach patients using high-dose opioids, leave the final decision up to them, and we put an associated remark in that if patients run into trouble with tapering, then that can be paused or potentially abandoned. But what we saw in maybe a bit of an overcorrection because of the opioid epidemic, there was a lot of pressure put on different uh, regulatory associations and clinicians to really clamp down on prescribing. And we've seen a couple of papers now come out, uh, large papers in JAMA and BMJ, showing that this indiscriminate tapering, uh, even you know, stopping opioids abruptly, typically leads to more harms than benefits. 
And so I think that with this new emerging evidence that we can now incorporate into the recommendations, we can be more forceful in terms of situations that might lead to greater benefit and also situations that are likely to lead to greater harms and try to help clinicians with this idea around tapering, you know, in conjunction with patients, not all the time, but, uh, you know, based on that sort of dis- the uh, discussion with the individual. Jason, I th- I'm also quite sure that many in our audience are, have patients that are on the, the various components of cannabis. Can, can you just give, give a brief update on what the, the evidence is on the, on the utility of cannabinoids in pain management? Yeah, it, it's it's a great question, and uh, you know, as as opioids have become increasingly, <laughs> the the pressure to use them has sort of increased. Cannabis has come in as a potential substitute, but certainly in Canada, and I I suspect in the U.S. as well, the emergence of cannabis as a therapeutic product has been guided more on the basis of you know providing it on compassionate grounds, not because we have a very strong evidence base behind it. Um, there are some exceptions. Uh, you know, you look at uh, certain pediatric seizure disorders and, you know, pure CBD appears to have a, a, a small but significant role. We evaluated the evidence for uh, cannabis and, and individual cannabinoids for chronic pain. And there is some literature out there. We found 32 randomized controlled trials, reasonable certainty evidence that they provide small but potentially important benefits for pain, smaller benefits for function, small benefits for sleep, not much in the way of benefits for emotional functioning, role functioning, or social functioning. But what we find, and we've completed a very recently a network meta-analysis looking at opioids versus cannabis for chronic pain, and we find that they're fairly similar. So they both appear to not be particularly effective. They won't work for the majority of individuals that, that live with chronic pain, but there does appear to be a subpopulation that well derives some level of important benefit. Cannabis, as you know, does not depress the respiratory system. So at least in terms of the harm profile, you cannot fatally overdose on cannabis. So it, it doesn't appear to be a panacea for chronic pain. It is not going to you know, create magic out there, but it might be useful for a minority of individuals with chronic pain. And it appears to have similar effectiveness, as I said, to opioids. Jace, speaking of magic, I'm hearing a lot about magic mushrooms and the psychedelics and psilocybin becoming another real opportunity uh, and another real, I guess you could say, play for opioid sparing as one of the potential marketplaces. Do you have any insight on, on that wave that is looking like it's moving in that direction? It looks like the you know, the work that happened in Canada they had the massive wave and now there's a second wave coming in the psychedelics. Yeah, I I think that in the the management of chronic pain, we're always excited about these sort of miracle cures, these magic bullets. They become very popular. They're heavily marketed. People are desperate for solutions. Clinicians are eager to provide relief to a patient group that often suffers tremendously. It takes a while for the evidence to catch up. In In this area, as far as I'm aware, the evidence is thin. So right now, most of the hype is, is just that. Now, there, there could be a role, I'm not sure, but you know whether we're looking at visco-supplementation for chronic knee pain or you know, platelet-rich plasma injections, people love the idea about a quick fix for chronic pain. And very often you do see this, this very popular promotion wave, rapid uptake, a lot of enthusiasm, and then typically the evidence comes in and demonstrates either that the intervention is 
not particularly effective or not as effective as we would have liked. So I think we have to try to learn from the history in this space. A lot of the interventions that appear to be promising, again, not for everyone, but for a lot of individuals with chronic pain or uh, you know, cognitive therapies can sometimes be helpful, finding ways to help people you know, become more physically active with the limitations that they may have imposed by conditions that are causing chronic pain, promoting more self-reliance, more independence. These are things that, that consistently seem to have important benefits, but they're not particularly sexy from a marketing perspective. There's not wonderful funding out there. There's no one that's going to get rich out there from providing these types of therapies. So it may be that psychedelics have some role to play among some individuals with chronic pain. Ideally, what they would do is empower the individual to become more self-reliant, greater functioning, and to take more ownership of their own care. That's great. Thank you. Do you have- Jason, I just have one last question for you. Uh, what, what, are, what are you working on in the center? What, what is your, your personal research agenda these days? We're very curious about uh, predicting who develops persistent pain after surgery. So we know from a lot of studies out there that about 25% of individuals that live with chronic pain endorse either a, uh, a, a traumatic event or a surgical procedure as a source. So we're quite interested to try to understand uh, what factors might be at play and can we possibly modify those to improve the prognosis of individuals that could be at higher risk? Two quick examples of this. We, uh, we've done some work looking at individuals undergoing breast cancer surgery, where you get about a 33% reporting of persistent pain a year or longer after the procedure in women. And we find that those women that undergo the uh, severing of the intercostal brachial nerve as part of the procedure are much more likely to report persistent pain. And speaking with with our oncology colleagues, they tell us that in many cases, they could avoid severing that nerve. It would take more time, uh, but they could do it. And so we're finishing up a trial right now to see whether nerve sparing can improve uh, or or decrease the rates of persistent pain in that population. When it comes to orthopedic trauma surgery, our group has been working with Mo's group quite closely for a number of years now and established that individuals soon after the surgical procedure that report high levels of catastrophizing, somatic preoccupation, are much more likely to report persistent pain and impairment after they've had a long bone fracture repair. And so we're currently involved in a large uh, international multicenter trial. We're enrolling a thousand patients undergoing uh, traumatic long bone fracture repair. We're randomizing them half to usual care, half to online cognitive behavioral therapy as a way to try to augment coping and we're going to see if we can improve outcomes. So that's uh, one area that we're quite active in. Well, Jace, I can't thank you enough uh, for spending time with us. And um, I suspect, uh, Mark, that Jason may be one of the uh, unusual recipients of a second cup from, <laughs> from Ortho yeah. Joe. I suspect I, you received your first and you may get a second on your mantle. I mean, this is going to be a collector's item for you, my friend. This is yeah, fantastic. Jason, I think Jason has uh, has been infected with the recurrent ortho Joe virus uh, that comes back <laughs> cyclically every year. So that's right. We, we hope that there's a therapy for this, but there may not be. <laughs> I, I certainly welcome the, uh, the the infection. No, I I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk about some of these things. Um, I welcome the opportunity to come back in the future and uh, tell you the results of some of these studies and and hopefully things that can help patients. Great. Thanks again, Jason. And we appreciate your time with us this morning. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.